text this morning is just the first four verses of Luke 11. I had looked at uh, the first 13 verses, and uh, Pastor Jeff thought maybe I could preach on all those this morning. He was wrong. Uh, I can't do that. <laughs> Jam-packed with teaching on prayer, and I know Pastor Jeff will want to pick up the difference of what I don't cover this morning, but I'm just going to open the, look at the opening verses, which give us Luke's version of what we call the Lord's Prayer. Reading from Luke 11, beginning at verse 1, once when Jesus had been praying, one of his disciples came to him as he finished and said, Lord, teach us to pray just as John, that is John the Baptist, taught his disciples. He said, this is how you should pray. May your, or Father, may your name be honored and may your kingdom come soon. Give us our food day by day and forgive us our sins, just as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And don't let us yield to temptation. As uh, Luke recounts the earthly ministry of Jesus of Nazareth, it's inevitable that at some point uh, he will need to describe the prayer life of Jesus. After all, a true worshiper of the one true God will be known as a man or a woman of prayer. In fact, it may well be said that our true doctrine and our true relationship with God are most accurately revealed in our prayers. Think for a moment of your own mentor in the faith, from your earliest days of believing, a mother, a grandmother, a pastor, a Sunday school teacher, a roommate at college, a neighbor, whoever it was, there is a very strong likelihood that um, what you most admired and appreciated about that person was his or her prayer life. It was in those moments when you overheard them in prayer that you got the clearest picture of their heart for God and their heart for others, including yourself. What an affirmation it must have been to hear that individual lift your name in prayer. I've often thought uh, on that occasion when Jesus turned to Peter and almost as a reprimand said to him, Peter, I prayed for you. Uh, you're on the wrong track here, and I prayed for you. But what an incredible thought to hear the words of Jesus saying to you, for whatever reason, I have prayed for you. And I'm reminded that in my earliest years, it was hearing my parents' prayer for me by name that had the single greatest impact on me. I've shared with you how I used to go down the steps at night after they'd tuck me in bed. I'd get out of bed and, and tinkle my way down the steps, get to the bottom step and sit on that bottom step and listen as they prayed on the other side of that door in their bedroom until I heard them say my name in prayer. And then I thought it was okay to go back to bed. The power of hearing your name, hearing someone pray for you. At any rate, on the day in question, the day described by Luke in our text for today, Jesus was praying, and when he finished, the text says, one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray. This was certainly not the first time the disciples had heard Jesus praying. Back in chapter 3, verse 21, we read that following his baptism, he prayed. In chapter 6, verse 12, the night before he chose the twelve to be with him. He prayed. Now, I don't know that they heard that prayer, but they knew what he was doing up there on the mountaintop, and it became apparent when he came down 
In chapter 9, verse 16, before he fed the 5,000, he prayed. Now, if you're going to turn a couple fish and a loaf of bread into enough food to feed 5,000 plus, you'd better pray a lot. Jesus prayed that day, and he did the work of God. In chapter 9, verse 28, on the Mount of Transfiguration, he took Peter, James, and John up the mountain. For what purpose? That he would pray to the Father. In chapter 10, verse 21, on the occasion of the 72, returning from their mission, he prayed and gave thanks to God for the ministry that they'd been able to accomplish. Nor did it stop there. You know that. All his earthly life, right up to the moment of his return to the Father, he would be observed praying for and on occasion praying with his disciples. But for some reason unknown to us, it was on this particular day that one of his disciples, we don't know which one because the text doesn't tell us, came to him with this simple request, Lord, teach us to pray just as John, that is John the Baptist, taught his disciples to pray. We gather from this that John the Baptist had, like most of the other rabbis of his day, taught his disciples to pray in a manner consistent with his beliefs about God and consistent with the unique mission that God had given him to fulfill. And without further ado or explanation, Jesus responds. He says, this is how you should pray. Some translations read, when you pray, say. And what follows is an abbreviated form of what believers today refer to as the Lord's Prayer, although the, the fuller form of this prayer and the one that we most often recite is recorded in the sixth chapter of Matthew's Gospel in the Sermon on the Mount, we still have this, this smaller, this shorter, this briefer version here in Luke's Gospel. Now, while it's not wrong for us to recite this prayer, either as individuals or in a corporate setting, it's most likely that this was not Christ's primary intent. If he meant it as a mantra of sorts, something to be said over and over again in a precise way, he failed. And certainly the disciples failed because they gave it to us in two rather different versions. Mantras don't have different versions. But it is the heart, the intent of what he has to say to us that we're to learn primarily from his teaching here. As it is, what we have is something far more important than a liturgical prayer to be repeated by believers and unbelievers, thoughtfully and at other times thoughtlessly down through the generations. We've all been present probably at times when the Lord's Prayer was recited something like Mary had a little lamb or 99 bottles of beer on the wall. To think that the mere recitation of these words is somehow meritorious is destroyed by that kind of experience. Once again, this is not to say that it should never be recited by men and women of faith. In fact, it's really quite wonderful for the Christian community to have at least one prayer, we evangelicals, to have at least one prayer that we can offer up to Father God in unison. One of my sons some years ago became involved in a very liturgical branch of, of the evangelical movement, and uh, he had all kinds of prayers that they prayed, and they knew how to pray them. And I said to him, I almost envy you that. We've just got this one, and we have trouble getting it said the same way across our different denominations. So there's nothing wrong with that, and it's a good thing. Nevertheless, it seems quite apparent that the greater value of Christ's words here is to be understood as a revelation of the attitudes appropriate to prayer. We've all heard someone referred to as being in an attitude of prayer. What does that mean? What does it 
mean that, to be in an attitude of prayer? What is an attitude of prayer? What are the attitudes of prayer that should characterize us when we come before the throne of God? That's the question we want to address this morning. And with that in mind, let's consider together these attitudes of prayer. The first of them is intimacy. Intimacy. It's no small thing to observe that Jesus' opening address and that which he encourages us to use when we approach God in prayer is Father, from the Aramaic Abba, dear Father, or Papa. I'm sure you've heard this before. It is a child's word used in infancy to refer to one's daddy. And while the Jews often referred to God as the father of creation and the father of their nation, Israel, they virtually never used this as a personal address for God. That was unheard of. It was considered far too intimate in nature to address God this way. In fact, as Bible scholars like to point out, the tendency in Jesus' day was quite the opposite, as is made clear in several of the prayers of that day, one of them being the prayer of 18 petitions, which, by the way, devout Jews were supposed to pray three times a day. And each time they prayed it, they would begin as follows. Lord God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, our shield and the shield of our fathers. At least that had to be on the front end by way of addressing God. And only then did devout Jews dare to proceed with their praises and their petitions. So when Jesus encouraged his followers to come into God's presence using the simple and intimate address, Father, he was announcing that God desires for us to come to him in a warm, relational manner. From time to time, we may find ourselves in a setting where God is approached as one would approach a good old buddy or a clerk in a local department store. And we instinctively recoil from such presumptuousness as, well, we should, I think. But we need never be afraid to come to God in a warm, personal, familial manner. This is the attitude that he invites when he tells us to address him as father. We have a little great-grandson. We actually have three great-grandchildren, and they, their mother is Mexican, and so much of what they say we don't understand, but at any rate, we understand some things. Leo is now probably two, two and a half, and uh, Leo's the one, probably the one that grabs our heart the most for whatever reason I don't know, but Leo refers to my grandson as puppy. He refers to my son as puppy puppy, and I'm still waiting for him to refer to me as puppy puppy puppy. There are no generational layers in the prayer before us. What God desires from us is a recognition of intimacy. There are no titles to distance us from him. He invites us to approach him as one who loves us deeply and is committed to us. If you never stop to marvel at that thought, that the great God of the universe invites you to approach him in such a manner, I encourage you to do that. Good place to stop right there sometime. And as you say the word Father, just stop and say, wait a minute. This is the God of all the universe. How dare I call him? Except that he's invited us to come to him on those terms. 
There's a second attitude called for in God's invitation to approach Him as Father. It comes out of this same word, and that is, it suggests also we should approach Him with confidence. Now, sadly, not all of us identify the address Father with an attitude of confidence. For some, Dad was anything but dependable. Maybe He left home while you were still quite young. Or perhaps... um, He was there but was totally undependable, maybe even abusive. Maybe he made promises but never kept them. He meant well but couldn't seem to help himself. Thank God for most of us that wasn't the case. In fact, for most of us, Dad was the one person we could depend on no matter who else let us down. I love that picture, that image in my mind of a child standing on a bed, bouncing up and down, waiting for daddy to come into the room, and daddy's saying, come on, come on, jump to daddy, and the little tile child takes off without the least concern that daddy might not catch him, or poolside, to observe the same thing as a little child jumps out across the pool into daddy's arms without any thought that daddy might not keep him or her from falling. Maybe you're the daddy now. Maybe you're the mommy now who has cultivated such trust, such confidence in your children or your grandchildren. It was to this kind of child-parent confidence that Jesus appealed when in the closing verses of this teaching on prayer, in verses 11 through 13, he says this, You fathers, if your children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake instead? Or if they ask for an egg, Do you give them a scorpion? Of course not. If you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit? Matthew says, good gifts to those who ask Him. And I like to believe that what Luke has done is basically said, He does give you good gifts. He gives you the very best gift. He gives you Himself. If you will ask Him, He will give you Himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. You know, even in the case of sinful fathers, Jesus says, it is normative to think of our Father as the one person above all else that we can depend on. Well, know this, he says, if your earthly father can be counted on to give you good gifts, how much more can you approach your heavenly Father with confidence to provide everything you truly need? But someone here this morning is thinking, you know, I wish I could approach God with an attitude of confidence. I used to. I used to, Marty, but it's been a long time since I've had the confidence that he really hears me and that he really wants to answer my prayers. I recall a season during my teen years when I lost confidence in my dad. Um... It seemed like no matter what I asked him for, the answer was no. I'm sure he had good reasons. I'm sure I was asking for some foolish things. But it seemed to me like he didn't even want to hear me. And he certainly didn't want to give me the things I was asking for. And I made a decision based on what I was feeling. I decided I'd I'd just find a way to get what I wanted on my own. Or if I couldn't do that, I would just do without. 
Many years later, when Sherry and I lost uh, our younger son and my dad to heart attack and my health and my pastorate, all in a relatively short period of time, I discovered that I was repeating that same pattern. Only now it was Father God that I'd lost confidence in, with the result that I had stopped going to him in prayer. Or if I did pray, it was without the confidence that he was paying any attention to me. That's a tough place for a pastor to be, for anyone to be. You know, coming to that realization, facing into it, when it came, took only a moment. But I remember that returning to the confidence I once had in him took more than a moment. It was a season in my life of waiting on God. Maybe you're going through a, a dark, maybe you, you're here this morning, you're going through a dark, you're going through a dry season in your walk with the Lord, and it seems to you that uh, he's gone silent with the result that you have stopped going to him in prayer. Or if you do pray, you really don't have the confidence that he hears or wants to answer. If that's you, listen to these words from the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 6. And without faith, without confidence in God, it's impossible to please him. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. Did you get that? The writer of Hebrews tells us that in the matter of prayer, an attitude of confidence is absolutely necessary. You say, but, but what should I do if I've tried and I just can't find that attitude of confidence in God that I once knew? Well, the first thing I would suggest to you is that you keep talking to him. And maybe you start right there. You tell him what you're wrestling with. You tell him what you're struggling with. The second thing I would suggest is that you invite those whose confidence in God is great to lift up your request, and maybe more importantly, to lift you up before God. You find some folks around you, and I remember in the days when I was struggling so hard, I was looking around me for people, brothers and sisters in Christ, who prayed with confidence. And when I'd see them, I'd go to them and say, I need you to pray for me. I need you to pray for what I can't believe God for. Will you, will you pray on my behalf? And then I remembered as I was doing that, that back in those years as a teen, when it seemed that I couldn't go to dad, I would go to mom. And I would say to mom, you ask dad for me. And for a little while, she did that. And then she came back to me and she said, no, you need to learn to go to your father. A third attitude of prayer that we should seek to cultivate is reverence. This is the needed balance for the, the first attitude of prayer that we talked about already this morning, which is intimacy. Intimacy. If the address father invites us to come before God with an attitude of intimacy and confidence, the cry for his name to be hallowed or honored calls for an attitude of reverence. It's a reminder that we do not come before him as an equal, 
but as a creature before his creator, as a little child before her parent, as the apostle Paul was fond of saying, as a slave before his master. Nor is there any resentment on our part that he's the greater and we're the lesser. In fact, just the opposite is true, isn't it? We take great delight in who he is, and we long for every last created being, every man, woman, and child from every tribe and nation to hold his name and his person in the highest regard. I think it's unfortunate that the word hallowed was used in most of our English translations at this point. It is a perfectly fine word, don't get me wrong. It's, it, it's just one that we have relegated to dictionaries and lists of now meaningless words. I'm reminded of the stories, many of you are familiar with this probably, but I tell it because it fits here so very well. The story of a little boy who went to church with his mommy and she went off to Sunday school and on the way home she said to him, honey, what did you learn in Sunday school this morning? He said, I learned God's first name. And she said, God's first name. Yeah, he said, I learned God's first name. She said, well, what is it? He said, it's Howard. She said, how do you know it's Howard? He said, well, I heard the Sunday school teacher pray, and she said, our Father who art in heaven, Howard be thy name. <laughs> in stark contrast to that misunderstanding of the hallowed name of God, the ancients understood full well that there was, there was importance, there was weightiness, there was meaning to the name of God. As late as the 8th century A.D., Hebrew scribes who made, who printed copies of the Bible held that sacred name so special in such deep respect that before writing the name of God, they would leave their work, go to their room, and bathe. And then they'd put on clean clothing before proceeding with their work. That meant 39 baths and 39 changes of clothing just for the 33rd chapter of Jeremiah and 40 for Deuteronomy chapter 28. How far we've come from such esteem of the divine. It was John White who wrote during the last half century, God has in fact been trivialized, packaged for entertainment, presented as a sort of psychological panacea, a heavenly glue to keep holy families together, a celestial slot machine to respond to our whims, a formula for success, a fundraiser, a slick phrase for bumper stickers, and a sort of holy pie and ice cream. Hmm. Worst still, I suggest to you, he has been reduced to the G at the end of OMG and an exclamation point for virtually every imaginable human experience. And in the midst of all this, the Lord's Prayer calls on us to approach this same God with reverence and with the sincere plea that one day all creation will fall before Him and honor Him as holy, holy, holy. There's an Indian legend it goes way back. The first, it says that the first American Indian to see the Grand Canyon tied himself to a tree in terror. Max Licato adds, and according to scripture, any man privileged a peak at God has felt the same thing. 
I make this personal confession to you. I fear that all too often I come before God in prayer without this attitude of utter reverence. I rush into his presence with my request because I'm busy doing his work. And then I hurry back out to do his work. But it's on those occasions when I, it's on those occasions when I dare to stay in his presence just a little longer, to be still and rediscover who he really is, that that attitude of reverence returns. This brings us to a fourth attitude that should characterize our prayers, and that's the attitude of submission. Look at verse 4. May your kingdom come soon. Now, those of you that studied Scripture much over the years know that God, God dwells in a heavenly kingdom, and that one day He's going to establish on earth His kingdom, an earthly kingdom as well, and that even now His kingdom rules exist in the hearts of His people. The essence of His kingdom is always rule, His rule. And that being so, our very time spent in His presence should be characterized by the attitude of submission to His sovereign rule. As with so many other attitudes of appropriate prayer, an attitude of submission is often all but missing as we come to Him initially in prayer. We come to Him with our wants, we come with our needs, we come with our plans. That's not bad. We come seeking His approval for what we're convinced He should really be in favor of. That's bad. See how wise I am, we say. See how good I knew you'd want to approve this plan. But as our prayer life matures, we discover that in the very act of praying, we find ourselves doing the hard work of giving up fleshly plans. At times, only after much wrestling. But we do learn. In prayer, we come to recognize who it is that we're praying to, and then begins the hard work of yielding right of way. Uh, I, I don't know if it's true here. We're over in Elgin. We got so many four-way stops. You, know, you come to a four-way stop, and you go, okay, who yields to whom? We're all supposed to sit here and figure out who yields to whom. Now, they've got, they found a way around that. Roundabouts. Don't you love roundabouts? You come to roundabouts, and if everybody's paying attention, nobody has to stop. You can all just kind of slide in and fit in. I sometimes think this is how we like to approach prayer. We want to come to God without having to answer the question of right away. We simply want to slide into the plan and move along with the flow. In prayer, God's Spirit teaches us to yield. You say, yield what? Our rights, our ambitions, our quest for control. Oh, just a little bit of control. I suppose I wrestle here more than anywhere. I want just a little bit of control. I want 5%. If God give me 5%, I can use that to control his 95. All true prayer, and eventually, eventually the prayer of every believer will take us to Gethsemane, won't it? Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. 
A fifth attitude of prayer is dependence. Verse 3, give us our food day by day. Now, scholars have written, did you know they've written complete books on this? Just what is meant by day by day? Duh, right? There are whole books written on this. What is meant by daily or day by day? I was, I'd forgotten this, and I got into the commentaries, and I thought, this is utterly ridiculous. But try, though they will, to obscure the meaning of this simple phrase. They've failed to do away with the simple truth that God wants us to acknowledge our dependence on him. Yes, even for the most basic, the most accessible of daily supplies, our food. The thought being, I believe, that if we must depend upon him for something so small and so easily accessible, then we must certainly depend upon him for everything else. And if this is once established, then it follows that we should come before him with a sense of utter dependence. As obvious as, as this may seem to the child of God, that statement faces at least two challenges, two enemies. The first is affluence, and the second is boredom. Let me look at boredom for a moment first. I was at a university church some years ago now, sitting at a table at the university in a large cafeteria area with a friend who headed up a university ministry, and we were enjoying lunch and fellowship together. Our meal came, I bowed my head, offered a silent prayer, and as I looked up, he said to me with a smirk on his face, do you still do that every time you eat? Don't you think God gets bored with your tired little prayers before meals? I said, no. But you obviously do. As for me, my friend, I don't ever want to suggest to God that I'm getting tired of his good gifts and don't need them any longer. The second enemy of an attitude of dependence upon God is affluence. Coming from a mid-Ohio steel town, wrong side of the tracks, in the 40s and 50s. There was always bread on the table, but, um, but mom knew where every penny's worth of food in the house was. We didn't waste any of it. And given that background, it never dawned on me that God's people could become complacent about something so basic as our daily bread, nor that life's luxuries might eventually become may be considered what the world, and for that matter, God, owes us. But after only a short time at an affluent church on the north side of Chicago, I found myself leading our congregation in a weekly mantra, one they had never prayed before. I would stand before them week after week and say, pray after me, Lord, we need you. We really do need you. But during those years, I learned that the more we have, the more God blesses us, the more likely we are to forget how dependent we are on him. Yet another attitude essential to prayer is penitence or repentance. It's probably the word we think of. Jesus teaches us to pray and forgive us our sins. And then he adds, just as we forgive those 
who have sinned against us. He says that, I think, to remind us that as children of God, we should demonstrate the same quality of forgiveness that he extends towards us. But what does it mean to approach God with a penitent attitude? It means two things. It means to acknowledge that we have sinned and are in need of forgiveness and that we desire to be set free of sin's dominion in order to serve him. A study of God's people through the ages will show that those that we think of as spiritual giants were all men and women possessed by this spirit of repentance. The Apostle Paul came to God on these terms. He said, I'm the chief of all sinners. Luther spent hours on his knees confessing. When he wrote the theses that he nailed to the, to the door of the cathedral, we sometimes forget the very first of those had to do with repentance. He said in that statement, it is for the believer to understand that all of his life is an act of repentance. Augustine wrote in depth of his search for forgiveness for his many sins. It seems that those closest to God are those who are most keenly aware of their sin and their constant need for forgiveness. Ruth Graham tells this wonderful little story. I read it some years ago, and uh, (laughs) I fell in love with it. She tells a story of a a day when Billy was gone, and she was busy getting things around for the children for supper. And and, and that night, they were going to have, among other things, watermelon. She prepared it early because she was going to be busy during the late afternoon, and she set out these slices of watermelon on the table, called the children around her and said, that is for supper. Do not touch it until supper. Later in the afternoon, she came by. Of course, there were slices of watermelon gone. She looked around and saw a trail of watermelon juice out to the front porch. There sitting on one of the steps was Bud, little Bud. She said to Bud, Have you been eating watermelon? And through rosy red lips that could only have been not so red because he was eating, and through seeds that were up and down the front of him and on the step before him, he looked her in the face and said, No, I haven't been eating watermelon. She said, Yes, bud, but you have been eating watermelon. No, he said, I haven't. She said, yes, you have. Look at your hands. Look at your shirt. Look at that. Those are watermelon seeds. You've been eating the watermelon. I told you not to. All right, he said, I have. She said, but don't you think you should ask Jesus to forgive you? Jesus knows everything. He knows all about what's in your life. And he knows that you've been eating it. You should tell him. And little bud turned to her and he said, him doesn't know. Him's only guessing. I think sometimes as we approach God in prayer, we're, we're almost like that. We're denying or we're excluding or we're not addressing the real issues in our life. We're talking nice talk to him. And the next thing we do is we insist that, well, he doesn't really know. Or if he knows, he doesn't care all that much because my sins aren't really all that bad, you know, compared to the rest of the people I know. But when we're confronted with the specter of the cross, it's kind of hard to conclude that God doesn't care about sin. Isn't it? Eventually, we come to terms with with the awfulness of sin and the necessity of forgiveness, 
Or if we don't, we'll simply stop praying altogether. Finally, an attitude of prayer that prayer requires is humility. And don't let us yield to temptation. We know from the breadth of Scripture's teaching that God does not tempt anyone to sin, and yet temptation does come. It comes to all of us, doesn't it? And when it comes, we do well to seek God's deliverance from it rather than attempt to overcome it in our own strength. And that's where humility comes into the picture. Because you see, only the very foolish and the very self-conceited will attempt to go mano a mano with the devil and his minions. And yet, it seems to me that we are forever tempted in the face of sin to make promises to God. You ever done this? I am so sorry, God, forgive me, and I will never do that again. Oh, really? Of course we'll do it again. David in Psalm 51 cries out to God and he says, I've sinned against you. And oh God, I was bought from my womb. I'm a sinner. I am a sinner. You leave me alone. I'm going to do it again. All right. And so there's nothing in Psalm 51 that suggests that David's going to cure himself or he can take care of the problem. Having confessed his great sin to God, he pleads for God's deliverance and strength. As he faces the future, he says, oh God, I was born in sin. You created me a clean heart. You renew a right spirit in me. You make me willing to, to obey. The sacrifice you want from me, oh God, is not my promises of obedience. It's a broken, it's a humble heart that says, I can't do this without you. It's this attitude of humility that honors God and gives us full access to his enabling power. The New Testament writer James takes up this same theme of humility in his little book to the church. In verses 6 and 7 of chapter 4, he says, God sets himself against the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. So humble yourselves before God. And then he tells this wonderful little anecdote. He says, look, don't say tomorrow we're going to go to this town or that town and we're going to do this or that. We're going to make this much money and then we're going to come back successful. He says, your whole life is like a fog. It's here one moment, it's gone the next. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wills, otherwise we will be boasting and boasting is sin. If the Lord wills, this will be so. And the point is this, that whether in matters of dealing with sin or just in your simple everyday affairs, humility is the attitude that pleases God when we come to him in prayer. But there you have it. One, two, three. How, did you count them? There are seven of them. Seven attitudes that should characterize our prayer life. You say, how in the world? Marty, you do that to us. You're being this, you know, I'm the guy that was guilty once preaching 23 points. Only seven this morning, so I'm feeling better. But you say, how do you respond to seven points like that? That come at us from the, the prayer, the Lord's prayer. Um, seem overwhelming? Maybe you're tempted to just put it in your notes, file it somewhere with your sermon notes. I think God would be pleased if we took a different response, though, and did this. 
May I suggest that we invite the Spirit of God to instruct, to convict us, each one of us, to make known to us just which one of these attitudes we most need to be cultivating in our life at this point in time. Bow your heads with me, will you? Let me just remind you what they are. And as one comes up that the Spirit of God puts his finger on, maybe this is an issue you want to address, not just this morning, but in the week ahead. Say, Spirit of God, guide me, direct me, convict me, heal me, restore me in this area of my approach to you. The first is intimacy. Intimacy. Are you approaching him as Father God, Daddy God? Confidence. Do you believe in him? Or are you going through one of those seasons in your life where you're shy of confidence? Reverence. Yes, he wants us to be intimate, but he also wants us to revere him, to hold his name as hallowed, special, sacred. Submission. Are you working around the edges? Or are you laying yourself open before him? Lord, whatever you say, your will be done. Dependence. Not trying to get it done by yourself. Recognizing that every aspect of life, every good gift comes from his hand. We depend on him. Repentance. Not fooling God or ourselves or anybody else about the fact that we do sin and need a Savior. Oh God, here I am before you, chief of sinners. Forgive me. Heal my heart. Transform me. Humility. And all of this, Lord, all of this can be done only by your hand and your power and your sovereign grace. Thank you. Amen.